Amen. You guys ever charged into something thinking that you were totally ready for it and then found out that you weren't? That you were a little overconfident? You know, we tend to do that sometimes. I remember when I was a kid, I was really into biking. It was kind of a phase. I've been through a lot of phases. And I don't know, I was like 12. And I thought I was like really, really good at biking. And I had this old Schwinn mountain bike <clears throat> that, that the, and maybe you guys had a bike like this. That the only way the brakes would work is if you squeeze them really hard, right? And then you would kind of slowly stop, right? I spent a lot of time on this bike going off of jumps and going down hills, and I thought I was kind of cool, thought I was really good at bikes. And I, I outgrew this bike, and so my dad, I think it was like for my birthday or something, my dad graciously said, hey, let's, let's go up and we'll get you a new bike. I'm like, great. So we go to Ashland, and we go to this bike shop, and, and I'm like, oh, I want that one right there, mostly just because it looked cool. And he's like, you know, that one's a little big for you. I'm like, oh, no, 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 this, this is the one I want. He's like, all right, well, you can try it, you know. So, so the guy's like, this is Nashville, and there's this big hill behind the bike shop, and, and this guy's like, okay, you want to take it for a test drive? So we go out, <clears throat> and I, I climb on the bike, and I can like barely you know, sit on it because it's so big. Uh, and, and, and this is an expensive bike. This is nicer than I ever had. You know? My dad's like, hey, listen, buddy, you, the brakes on this are not like the brakes on your old bike. Okay, like if you squeeze these things, like they're going to work. And I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever, dad. Like you don't even know you're old and I'm cool and I'm young and I, and I know how to ride bikes. And what do you know about bikes? I didn't have bikes when you were a kid, right? Um, and so I just totally blew them off, whatever, super confident. So I get on the bike and I'm like, I'm going to really just show everybody watching like how good I am at riding bikes, you know? So I start tearing down this hill and I get about halfway close to the bottom. And you know what I did? I just grabbed my brakes so hard, and I went right over the handlebars. Biked it front flips, all scuffed up, just totally ate it, right? Uh, and the first thing that popped in my head was like, oh, my dad told me not to do that, and I didn't listen. And we ended up having to buy the bike because it was all scratched up. Okay, what, what's my point? How, what relevance does this have? Um, this is kind of like what's going on in our text this morning. Okay, the, 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 Jesus is trying to get these disciples to listen. He's trying to get them to, to learn. He's trying to get them to depend. And he's basically kind of let them loose on their own a little bit to see how they do. He's trying to prepare them. What's he trying to prepare them for? Well, he's leaving. He's going to the right hand of the Father. And when he goes, they're going to have to depend on the Father themselves without him there. Uh, yesterday, and it was kind of fun, I took the kids down, and, and we've been slowly but surely, one by one, trying to teach them how to ride the bike without training wheels, and Myla's been waiting so patiently for me to get out and fix her bike so we can, so she can learn to do it without training wheels, and, and so we did it yesterday, you know, I, I put the shirt around the waist, you guys ever do this trick, you put a shirt around the waist, and you hold on to the shirt, and you're kind of like running next side by side, and then, and then slowly but surely, I just let her go. And it's like that proud dad moment where you first see your kid just like cruising without the training wheels and without you holding on. Um, and of course, she was kind of angry at me because I let go sooner than I, sh- I should have. But um, she's cruising and I'm proud and this is great. Uh, this, is, this is what Jesus is trying to get these guys to do. He's, he's trying to prepare them over this three-year training course that he has with his disciples. He's trying to prepare them because he's going to go to the right end of the Father, and he needs to know that they're going to continue to coast, that they're going to continue to ride, that they're going to continue to follow after the Lord. And this morning kind of gives us a little bit of an insight into uh, whether these guys were, were really ready for this. You know, the reality is sometimes we, we forget how hard life really is, We forget how much we really need the Lord, and sometimes we just charge into things and forget that without the Lord, we're nothing. 
You realize that? Like, without the Lord, you're really nothing. I was just thinking of all the stories in the Old Testament this week of, of, of times where, where people in the Bible would charge into something and realize they forgot the Lord. Thinking about Joshua, right? He, he has this victory in, in Jericho, um, feeling pretty good. They, they go to the next city, Ai. What happened? Uh, there was sin in the camp. God wasn't with them. They failed. That, that time, and they had to deal with stuff first. I think about Samson, right? He goes and, and goes out to the Philistines, assuming he has the power, assuming he has the power he had before, and he, and he doesn't have it anymore. We're trying to, to teach our kids. We're trying to, we're trying to teach, uh, the Lord is trying to teach us to walk on our own, but the reality is we're going to see is that for me and my daughter, I'm trying to teach her how to ride on her own. What Jesus is trying to teach us is to ride with him. The reality is he's trying to grow us up into dependence, on him, not, inter, not independence, but dependence on him. So our text, I think, answers this question this morning. It's, how do we overcome valleys when it feels like Jesus is not there? Because in our text, Jesus, at least for the first part, he's not there. And the disciples are kind of freaking out. Uh, what, when what formerly worked no longer works. You ever have that? So, something worked one time and it didn't work the next time. You know, you got depressed one time and, and you, you found this trick. Oh, I just got up earlier. I read my Bible more. It worked. And then the next time it doesn't work. Well, the disciples are going to have this moment where something that used to work no longer works. And they're not really sure what to do with that. So let's just dive right into the narrative. Again, we're in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And I'm not going to read the whole thing ahead. I'm just going to let it unpack as we go because it's, really, it's, a, it's a pretty dramatic story. Verse 14 when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. So here's what's happening. Jesus has been on the Mount of Transfiguration. John Sled did a great job last week um, preaching that passage. Jesus has been with his three, Peter, James, and John, um, experiencing this glimpse of glory up on the mountain. Um, and as they're coming down the mountain, they probably had arranged to sort of rendezvous maybe at a certain point. The other nine disciples have been waiting. Uh, and they've been doing what they always do, which is to continue to minister in the power and the authority of Jesus. He gave them the authority. Remember that? He said, you have the authority. Go and, and, and function in that authority. So as Jesus is coming down the hill with his three guys, he sees the crowd in the distance. And he starts to get closer. Uh, he realizes that the crowd is actually encircling the, the disciples. So you can imagine as Jesus is sort of pushing his way through the crowd. In fact, they probably would part once they saw him. He realizes that at the center of this encircled crowd, there's, there's kind of a freak show going on. And it's the disciples in, in, in locked with this argument with the scribes. And they're shouting at one another, no doubt. They're pointing fingers at one another, no doubt. They're, they're, um, the disciples, feeling probably attacked and insecure, are kind of lashing out irrationally. And the scribes are just throwing uh, you know, insults. And back and forth, they're locked in this argument. And Jesus shows up and he says, what are you arguing about? What's going on? What's the deal? I mean, he's just trying to get caught up on what's, what's the morning events. It's, it's morning. They went up the day before to the Mount Transfiguration. Sun just came up, and there's already this big commotion. What's going on? And we know what's going on. They're, they're arguing with, with the disciples. And what are they arguing about? Well, we don't exactly know, but I can tell you it's probably some of the same things that the scribes have been heckling the, the, the disciples about this whole time. Hey, why do you guys not observe the, the rituals that the traditions say that you should? 
Hey, why are you guys, why is your rabbi always doing things that are so unconventional? Why is he so counterintuitive to what we preach in our philosophies? And the disciples are, are arguing back. Now, the scribes love to argue with the disciples because they're way easier to defeat than Jesus, right? And so they came looking for Jesus, and he wasn't there. He was up on a hill climb, and so they're like, perfect. This is our time to really get under the skin of these disciples. Now, we get a little bit of a picture as to what's going on, because out of the crowd immediately steps a man, and he's going to fill Jesus in on what happened. He kind of goes, excuse me, I think I can, Jesus, I think I can help you understand what's going on here. He says this, 17. Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. He's demon-possessed with this spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. They were not able. So now we get a picture of what's been going on. This man and his son, who's been demon-possessed, show up to find Jesus and hope to get a miracle, to to see this demon removed. And unfortunately, they get the answering machine. And they might as well have got the answering machine. Unfortunately, they get the assistant to the Jesus, right? They they get the the, the nine, not even the three, not even Peter, James, and John. They get the the third-tier disciples, right? Or the second-tier disciples. Oh, great. The assistant's in. He says, we came to see you, and your guys were here, and we thought, well, shoot, maybe they can do it. And guess what? They couldn't do it. Now let's talk a little bit about these characters. So we have a father and we have a son. I want to talk about the son. What has this boy been dealing with? What's he been living through? Well, we know that he's been possessed by a particular kind of demon. There are levels of demons because there are levels of angels and demons are fallen angels. So Jesus is this particular kind of demon uh, will only come out with prayer, he'll later say, which means that this particular kind of demon is particularly powerful. And it has chosen this young child to be its host. Demons are immaterial beings. So he's living within this material host. This demon has controlled this boy since he was very young. Okay, so this could have been going on for maybe three, four, five, six years. This has been the reality for this child. The way that it manifests itself is it causes seizures and self-harm. This boy will throw himself into the fire, we'll learn. He'll chuck himself into the water, attempt to drown himself. This is, this is just heart-wrenching to think about, to, 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 to realize. This demon seems to be deaf. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But it manifests itself. And now that this child is unable to hear and unable to speak, he's incommunicable. Now, question. Why do demons always seek to destroy their hosts? You notice that? Wouldn't it make sense? Like, hey, this, this is my host. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to take care of it. The answer is because humans are sacred bearers of God's image. And Satan and all the demons hate God. They hate God. And you bear his image. You are a particular sacred imago Dei is the, is the word. You are made in the image of God. And so Satan and all who are under Satan's power hate you and seek to destroy you. Did you know that? 
Every, every, every temptation that you feel, every lie that you believe, it's sourced in a, uh, an oppression that wants to see you destroyed because you bear the image of God, because you are something that is valuable to God. You are something that was so valuable to God that he sent his own son to come purchase you. And this child is valuable to God. And this demon, therefore, hates this child. Now, I just got to say something here. If you think your kids, some of you in here have kids, young kids, if you think your kids are not being attacked by darkness because you've sheltered them from things, you're wrong. They know darkness is part of their reality. They have birthed into it. I want to read a quote for you that I thought was really good by G.K. Chesterton. He said, fairy tales then are not responsible for producing in children fear or any of the shapes of fear. Fairy tales do not give the child the idea of the evil or ugly that is in the child already because it is in the world already. Fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of the boogeyman. What fairy tales give the child, listen, is the first clear idea of the possibility of defeating the boogeyman. Love that. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon. Exactly what the fairy tale does is this. It, it accustoms him for a series of clear pictures to the idea that these limitless terrors had a limit. That these shapeless enemies have enemies in the nights of God. That there is something in the universe more mystical than darkness and stronger than strong fear. I love that. We're so worried about our kids, you know, realizing dark things. Our kids are aware of dark things because they live in a dark world. What they need to be told is that there's a defeat for that darkness, that there's something that can slay the dragon. My son, six years old, he, he, he's already terrified. We, it's, it's like I didn't have to tell him about it. He didn't have to see scary things. He's just terrified of scary things. It's just in him because we live in a world that has scary things. This child, we don't know what opened up this child to this. But the reality is we need to realize our kids are open to these dark things. They're open to these dark things, and we need to go to battle. We need to go to war for these things. Now, what has this meant for the father? I talked about the son. I want you to put, your, um, put yourself in the shoes of the father for a minute, okay? Imagine that, that you have a child, and he's totally fine one second, and then the next day, all of a sudden, he's not. All of a sudden, he has this debilitating seizures that are happening. All of a sudden, he starts trying to kill himself all of the time. And, and every time you do anything, you try to go to the lake and you're, you're freaked out because if you turn your back, he might throw himself into the water and try to drown himself. You're, you're freaked out when you're sitting around the fire because you know time and time again, he'll just throw himself into the fire. That's what the scripture says here that he does. How terrifying would that be? How much guilt would you be feeling as a father? Like, is this something that I did? Did I bring something on this kid that's making him uh, open to these things? You're sitting there at night and you look down and you see the scars on his legs from the flames and you think to yourself, why? What did I, what did I do? Why did I do? Why is he doing this? And how do I overcome this? You feel constant shame not being able to, to help. And ultimately, he's so desperate that he's seeking out Jesus as a last resort. Right? Now, unfortunately for this father, he's picked the wrong day to come and find Jesus. He picked the wrong day. 
He didn't know Jesus was going to be up on the hill with his guys. He thought he was going to get an audience with Jesus and this would take care of the issue. And it didn't. So verse 19, Jesus, in response to the, the father, he answers him, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. I love that statement. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. Jesus takes a moment to survey the unbelief that is enveloping the entire scene. You could ask the question, who is Jesus talking about here? Is he talking about the disciples? Is he talking about the crowds? Is he talking about the Father? Is he talking about the scribes? And the answer is all of them. All of them are still being ultimately controlled by this spirit of unbelief and lack of faith. The crowds are there because they want to see the freak show, right? The crowds are there because they want to see Jesus do something. And the scribes are there because they're, they're so faithless, they're just trying to shut Jesus down because he's incompatible with their false religious system. And the disciples, the nine, right, they're faithless. They don't have the ability to believe the Lord to, to cast this demon out. And even the father, as we'll see in a moment, is faithless. He has very little faith. Jesus is just, he's stunned by the faithlessness of the generation that he is walking in the midst of. So we've seen the scene. Now let's look at the Savior, verse 20. They brought the boy to him. Just like he said, he said, bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, Immediately, it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Why is this happening? It's happening because the demon that's living within this child is seeing reality, and he doesn't see a normal, average-looking Jewish man who's 32 years old. He sees the glory of his creator and his judger. He sees the glory of the one who has created an eternal torment for him. He sees what the disciples saw on the top of the mountain, which is the pure nuclear glory of God. You see, the disciples in the crowd, they just see Jesus. just looks like a normal, average guy. The demon sees the one who's come to judge him eternally. And so what does he do? He doesn't run. He does what he does best. He continues to convulse and harm the child because that's what demons do. They seek to kill and destroy. And so just the very... Sight, just the very presence of Jesus puts this kid into seizures. 21, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. You know, I love this. You'd think Jesus would just stop what he was doing and no, don't take any more time. Just cast the steam out. This little kid is under attack. Just get it over with, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. He, he stops. And he takes a minute and he turns to the father. He says, hey, how, how long have you been dealing with this? I don't know, why is Jesus asking this? Is it, does he need to know? Is that going to somehow help the situation? Is Jesus not already know? The answer is that Jesus is taking a moment to love this father. He's taking a moment to, to give attention, to give ear to the trauma, to the hurt, to the pain of this father who's been walking through this for so long. What a kind Jesus. What a kind man. What a kind God. Our high priest. That he doesn't just trudge on. You're like, we've got to overtake the evil. He says, no, I'm going to stop evil. I'll overtake it in a moment. I'm going to stop and I'm going to listen to this father. And I'm going to give ear to this father. 
You know, sometimes that's what we need to do. We're so quick to want to just fix things for people. You know, sometimes we just need to listen. We just need to listen. Jesus, is, he's going to heal this kid, but he gives time to the Father. It's a beautiful reality. In verse 22, the second half, but if you can, now listen to what the Father says. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. So this father's faith has been shattered. It's been shaken. It was already weak. It was already fragile. It was already limping its way to Jesus. And, and now that he showed up and Jesus' disciples turned out to be powerless, his faith is weak. And he goes, look, Jesus, I, I'm, just, I'm glad that you're here, man. But you know what? We came a long way to be here. If you could, can, you, can you do something or not? Can you, do so? can, can you do this? And Jesus puts his finger on the man's issue, which is faith. He says, can I? No, no, no. The question isn't, can I? The question is, do you believe in me? That's the question. Jesus shifts to the more important question, and that is the question of this man's faith. And, and, and hear this, okay? This isn't some kind of a word, faith, prosperity theology that, well, hey, buddy, if you have enough faith, then you'll get whatever you want. Like, like this is Buddy the Elf, and we're powering Santa's sleigh with, with Christmas cheer and belief, okay? The Holy Spirit's not a tube. You don't squeeze him with faith. That's not how it works. And ultimately, Jesus heals this kid, and this guy didn't have much faith. So it's not about the level of his faith. It's about whether there is the presence of faith. And this Man needs to have faith in Jesus. That's the most important thing here. That's the most important thing. And now don't miss it. Jesus says, all things are possible for the one who believes. Buddy, if you're with me, if you're on my side, Jesus would say, we could change the world. What can we not do? What can we not change? The question he's asking is the wrong question. It's the same question we ask we ask two questions. We ask, can God and will God? Is God strong enough to? Will God? The real question is, do you believe him? Do you trust him? That's what faith is. Faith isn't about controlling God. Well, if I believe this enough, then I'll get whatever I want. No, faith is about trusting God. He's the power source. That's what Jesus is trying to teach this man. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. What an interesting grammatical sentence, isn't it? What an interesting sentence. What a thing to say. It's like, it kind of, kind of doesn't make sense. I believe. Help my unbelief. But it makes sense when we think about our lives. It makes sense when we think about our realities. Our realities are this, that our faith is not pre-purified. It's tainted. It's mixed with unbelief, isn't it? Isn't yours? Isn't mine? I mean, are you ever stunned by that? Just like one second, you seem to just locked into the Lord. Like, yeah, God, whatever you say, man, I'm following you. I feel good. The next day you wake up and you're like having an existential crisis. And you're like, am I, am I, am I bipolar? No, you are a human who has been saved by grace in process. This is what this man is voicing humbly. He's voicing it humbly. I believe, but then at the same time, I got all this unbelief. I don't know what to do with it. Will you help that? He's like, I want to believe. I, I have a desire to believe, but I also have all of this unbelief, and I don't know what to do with it. Can you help me with it? 
You know, sometimes we are afraid to voice our unbelief because we're afraid that perhaps the church will reject us or perhaps maybe uh, if we voice our unbelief, it'll somehow have more power. I would suggest to you that like this man, you have the humility to voice your unbelief to Christ. Tell him where you struggle to believe and then say, would you help me to believe in that area? Sanctification, this thing we're all doing as Christians, it's the process of God working out our unbelief. So it only takes a, a little bit of belief to, to be given the gift of salvation, and it's a lifetime of God working more belief in us as we grow. And what's impressive about this man is not the amount of faith that he has, like some word faith um, healers would say. It's not the amount of faith. In fact, the amount of faith that he has is very unimpressive. Some of you are feeling, well, uh, God would heal me if I just had enough faith. No! That's not the point. This man had very little faith. It wasn't the point. Jesus' point is if you even have a little faith, we can do amazing things. What's impressive about this man is not his immense faith. It's, about, it's his honest and humble faith. It's his broken faith. It's his willingness to admit his unbelief. See, that's true faith. True faith isn't like the Jedi Knight Christianity where you walk around and you can move things if you believe enough. True faith is the brokenness to admit that sometimes I have unbelief. And I trust the Lord enough to voice that. Verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, <clears throat> saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Jesus has the power and authority to command this mute spirit, pardon me, mute spirit that can't hear to leave. That's significant. People at the time believed that in order to exercise a demon, you had to know its name, call it by name, call it out by name. Jesus doesn't, how do you do that with a deaf demon? Well, Jesus is more powerful than that. He doesn't even need to hear him. He just has the power. He casts him out immediately. Verse 26, after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and note the words, and he arose. What a beautiful picture of the gospel, by the way. It looked like the enemy had won here, didn't it? It looked like the moment of darkness on the cross. It looked like the moment that it seemed like sin had won, that the enemy had won, that, that the son had been murdered. Except for these words. Then he, what? Arose. Then he arose. This is why the gospel is good news. Because Jesus died so that you don't have to, and that Jesus didn't go into the grave defeated. He came out of the grave victorious. He arose. We're going to celebrate that in a few weeks. Are you excited? We get to celebrate it every year. He didn't stay in the grave. He arose. He is risen. He is victorious. One commentator says, the dethroning of Satan is always a reversal of death and an affirmation of life. Resurrection is the ultimate death blow to sin and death. It's beautiful. Now, verse 28, we get back to the disciples here, and they're confused. They're confused why they couldn't cast out the demon. 
Because see, before they were able to, remember? Jesus gave them the authority and the ability to. They had this button they could sort of push. People would bring, um, you know, uh, sickness and, and broken limbs and things, and they would push the button and the healing would happen, right? And then this time happens and the button's not working. You ever have that? You get in and start your car every day, and then that one time when you really need your car to start, it doesn't start. You're like, come on, it starts all the time. Why does it start now? The disciples are like, man, this button worked before, and now it doesn't work. And they're like, we got to ask Jesus about this. So the nine come over to the, the three that are still tripping about the fact that Jesus was glowing on a mountain. And they come up and they say, Jesus, can we just ask you, why were we not able to cast that demon out? What's the deal with that? And I want you to hear Jesus' response, verse 29. And I think it's the point of the passage. Jesus said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, what an interesting thing to say. Okay, what an interesting thing to say. For, for, for a few reasons. First of all, you're telling me the disciples didn't think to pray? You're, you're telling me they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't do that? I'm sure that they did that. And the other interesting thing is, is that Jesus didn't pray when he, when he cast this thing out, right? So what's he talking about? Is he, say, is he saying this? He's saying, guys, if you would have just rambled off this one little sentence, this demon would have left. Is that what he's saying? Oh, that's witchcraft, right? That's, that's, that's Harry Potter. That's like if you say the right words in Latin, then somehow this power is going to happen. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying there's some special prayer. If you just pray this prayer, the power will come. What is Jesus saying? Well, that word prayer is interesting. It's typically translated in the New Testament, place of prayer. It's used in Acts chapter 16 to describe uh, where Lydia and in Philippi, actually, the church of Philippi was praying by the river, the place of prayer. It's used to describe the house of prayer in the temple, the place where the Gentiles were meant to be able to come and have space and access to God. So it could be that Jesus is actually telling these guys the reason you couldn't cast the demon out wasn't because he didn't say the right words, wasn't because he didn't have enough faith, it's because you were not in the place of prayer. What does that mean? You guys were not prayed up. You weren't ready for this. You weren't connected to the Father. You weren't dependent. You had sort of assumed that this power was yours to yield, that this power had been given to you to use as your discretion, like, like, like some kind of a wizard's staff. That's not how it works. Jesus is saying, if you want to walk in power, if you want to overcome serious darkness and serious oppression, you have to stay in the place of dependence, the place of prayer. You can't leave it. That's why Jesus made time every day to go and to beware, to be in the place of prayer knowing that anything that was coming that day, he needed to be in a space where he was ready, where he was fully focused, fully engaged, fully ready to, to deal with it with the Father's strength. He knew that was the, important, the most important thing. This level of darkness takes a prayer-filled life, a prayer-filled life, a life that's defined by dependence to a level that the disciples had not yet really experienced. Jesus is basically saying, you guys aren't plugged in. You're not connected. You're not connected to the Father. You need to be connected to him. You know, I don't know about you guys. I have this tendency to uh, press into the Lord in hard times. And I, and I press into the Lord. I begin to feel his grace. And it starts to, 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 to make a change in my life. And then things get easy. And what do I do? 
I stopped getting up early and praying. I stopped asking. I stopped depending on the Lord. I stopped opening his word expectant, hungry. I stopped expecting him to do things. I stopped leaning on him, depending on him, needing him. And then something hard comes along and all of a sudden I'm like Samson with no hair. All of a sudden I'm like Joshua at AI. I just, there's no power. And it's not, well, we'll just say this one thing and it's going to fix it. No, I need to cleave to the Lord at all times, in good times and in bad times. And I think that the lesson that these guys are learning here in this story when we stand back and look at it is that they need to stay connected. And Jesus is trying to teach them this. He's been trying to teach them this for almost three years now. It's coming down to the wire, guys. I'm going to the right hand of the Father and I need you guys to depend on the Father. And you haven't learned to do it yet. You still need the training wheels. You still need the training. You still need me to to hold on to you behind you. Jesus isn't trying to teach them to do it on their own, but he is trying to teach them to do what he modeled, which is to depend on the Father every second of every day. Now, why does Jesus say prayer? Why does Jesus say prayer? Calvin said the chief exercise of faith is prayer. (laughs) You know, I can tell a lot about the spiritual maturity of someone by how much they pray. And I don't mean the, the pharisaical prayers. The prayer has a way of, of, of showing whether we're actual atheists or not. Many of us claim to be Christians, but we're, we're, we're functional atheists because we actually don't ask the Lord about anything. I mean, if God's your king, if God's your source, if God's your, your everything, then it kind of makes sense that you would be tuned into him. And how do we tune into him? We tune into him through his word and through prayer. So Jesus is saying, if you guys want to have uh, this robust power, you need to be in a constant, connected prayer life to the Father. Jesus modeled that for him. So I have this dog, this puppy. We're trying to train her, and she's, she's real excited about everything. It's really hard to train her. Um, but, but I'm trying to teach her how to walk on the leash. You guys ever done this with a dog before? And what do they do, man? They're just like... <laughs> Like, just pulling, like, you know, and I'm like, ah, and she's a large dog, so it, it's tiring. You know, your arm wants to fall off by the end. Um, and everybody that walks by, she needs to go say hello, you know. So I'm trying to teach her to do what? I'm trying to teach her to just stay right there. And there's a sweet spot, right? It's right there. It's not right here. It's not right there. It's not even right here. It's right there. Why there? Because she's following me. She's following me. And so what I've been doing is I have have treats in my hand and I'm just kind of like bloop, 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 like every five seconds. And what am I teaching her? She's like, this is where the treats are. This is where I need to be. It is good for me to be here. Let's make three tenths, right? This, This is what she's learning. Like this is the place, the place where the treats come. Not up there, not back there, right here. This is what the Lord's trying to teach us, man. We get out in front of him, don't we? God, I got this. You go up and go on your hill climb. We're good down here. No, no, don't get out ahead of him. Don't get behind him where he's having to pull you along. Just stay right there. Right in that pocket, right in that place, right in that place where we're following. And see, the goal would be that at some point, my dog, I would be able to take the leash off and she would still walk right there. And so Jesus is trying to teach these guys, hey, guys, there's a pocket, there's a place right at the heel of the Father. Just stay right there. Don't get too far ahead of him. Don't start telling God what you're going to do. Don't start telling God what your plans are. Don't get so far behind him where you never take any risks, you never follow him, you never walk by faith. Just stay right with him. 
What does it look like to stay right with him? It means, God, where have you put me right now? And how do I be faithful in that? Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's singleness. Maybe it's kids. Maybe it's no kids. Maybe it's retirement. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's not work. Maybe it's sickness. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, God says, hey, I put that in your life providentially. Just stay right there. Just stay. Stay with me. That's what Jesus is trying to tell these guys. They weren't connected to the Father. So what? Let's back up here and just kind of ask the bigger question. I think that this for us this morning should be an encouragement, an encouragement of what it looks like to walk through hard times when it feels like Jesus is up on the mountain. Do you ever feel like that? Do you feel like, man, Jesus must be somewhere else because he doesn't seem like he's here. And the, and the, the tricks that I used to use, they don't work anymore. The, the demon's not coming out. And it's just a mess. The scribes are here heckling me. The crowd is around. Everyone, we're, in, we're, we're insecure. I mean, how many times do we feel like that in life? Like, Lord, where are you at? Are you up a mountain? So I just want to give you three encouraging things to think about from this passage. And I hope that, this, that these things would embed into this passage. That whenever you read it on your own, that, that you would be reminded of these realities, okay? So let me give you three things to think about, to remember from this passage. Just do this quickly. And then we're going to have some circles. So... Number one, we need to remember when we're feeling like the disciples were feeling here, we need to remember, write it down, weakness sets the stage for wonder. Weakness sets the stage for wonder. You know, we have this really bad habit as Western evangelicals of assuming that any time we're weak and any time we're in pain, that must not be God's will because we've been lied to. Surely God's ultimate will is that we would avoid all hard things. Weakness sets the stage for wonder. You know, if these guys, listen, if these guys had, with power, just cast out that demon right away, I'd probably end up being up here preaching a sermon about how we need to walk in power rather than preaching a sermon about how we need to embrace our weakness. Wouldn't we? If we just do what these guys did, if we just pray the right way, if we just do the right thing, we can yield the power of God and we'll just, and we'll just succeed. But guess what? This is a story in many ways about the failure of the disciples and the success of Christ. Isn't that great? Because it's what we need to be reminded of over and over again. That we're the nine, we're the disciples that were like, man, I don't have the power. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's the point. You don't have the power. I have it. And don't ever forget that. Instead, we're looking at this story and it's a reminder of the weakness that we have. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 8, he said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He's talking about the thorn in his flesh. He said, but the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, my, for, uh, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Isn't that crazy? Therefore, Paul says, this is even more crazy. It's not crazy because you've heard it too many times. You've been in church too long, okay? If, if you were not in church, this would be crazy to you. Therefore, I will boast more gladly of my weakness. Who does that? Nobody boasts in their weakness. Weakness is what you hide. Weakness is what you put under the rug. Weakness is what you cover up with shallow insecurities and with, with plastic surgery and fake credit card money and nice cars. And, and, and you, you hide that stuff, right? Paul says, no, 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 I brag about it. I brag about it. Why would Paul brag about weakness? He says, so that, listen, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, when we can't cast out the demon, guess what? Jesus comes down the hill. And that's what I want. 
This isn't a story about how to muster up enough faith within yourself so you can control God. This is about a story about complete dependence, needing Jesus to come down the hill and do what only he can do. Our weakness is what we boast in. In your life, listen, in your life, you will be continually disappointed by everything but Jesus. You just will. I mean, I don't know how long you've been walking with Jesus. But if, it's, if it hasn't been very long, then maybe you haven't yet. If it's been more than five years, you know exactly what I'm talking about. How many spiritual leaders in your life have disappointed you? How many churches have disappointed you? This father is disappointed. He's disappointed by the disciples. He's disappointed by his own lack of faith. But he's not disappointed. Listen to me. What he's not disappointed with is Jesus. He's not disappointed with Jesus. You will be disappointed by me. You will be disappointed by this church. You will be disappointed by whoever you listen to on your podcast. You'll be disappointed by this country. You'll be disappointed by each other. You'll be disappointed by your kids, by your spouse, by your parents, by your best friends. They will fail you. Christ will not. Our weakness is a reminder that he is the one we need. The weakness of others is a reminder. The weakness of the disciples magnified the strength of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful. And this changes everything, right? It changes everything because now I don't see my failure as something to run from, to hide. I see my failure as something to embrace. And that's why Christians should be the most honest humans in the world, right? We should just right up front be like, man, you want to hear what a wretch I am? We don't delight in it. But we're honest about it because we believe the gospel is sufficient to cover us. And therefore, we can be a gospel community that goes, hey, you want to hear about my weakness? That's what we need to boast in. Man, my prayer would be that we would be a community of people that come in here and are honest about our weakness. Because if you're not honest about your weakness, then people will come in here and they'll fake it to try to impress you. Because they think there's nothing wrong with your life and you know you're a disaster. I'm a disaster. We're not. We don't have it all together. We need to be a gospel community shaped by weakness, willing. And you know, when you offer up your weakness to someone else, you know what it gives them the freedom to do? To do the same. It's not that we delight in our struggles. It's not that we delight in our sin. It's not that we delight in our brokenness. We delight in the grace that is sufficient for it. Our faith is in him and what he's done. So remember that weakness sets the stage for wonder. Number two, remember, this is important, that Jesus came down the mountain. He is here. He is working. Now one could ask the question, why didn't Jesus just stay up there? He's on the mountain. Elijah's there. Moses is there. Glory is there. That's what Peter's thinking, right? That's why he says, hey, let's build some tents. Let's just camp here. And the father has something else to say. He's like, don't do that. Why? Because Jesus needed to come back down to the valley. Because we live in the valley. You know that? We live in the valley. Theologians call it the already not yet. It's this place where we're just waiting. Our souls are longing for the eternal kingdom. When will I stop getting sick? When will I stop having chronic illness? When will people that I love stop dying? When will people stop being murdered? When will wars stop? When will disease stop? When will sin stop? We're just in the valley just waiting for that. But here's the good news. Jesus didn't stay up there. He came down out of heaven. Man, I can barely even get out of bed 
because it's so comfortable. Jesus left the comfort and the glory of the Trinitarian love within heaven and came down into a broken, toxic muck of a world. He came down the mountain. He didn't leave us to our own devices. He came down the mountain. Jesus, while he's on the Mount Transfiguration, I guarantee he's thinking about the nine. And he's thinking about the cross. And he's thinking, I got to go down. Because if I don't go down, if I just stay up here in glory, if I don't go down, there is no true redemption. I need to go down. I need to go to the cross. And the good news for where we sit, see, we sit in a different time than these disciples. Where we sit, Jesus has come down and has been victorious. And what was true of this young demon-possessed boy is true of us. Jesus has conquered death. He's conquered the grave. He's risen. And I love that Jesus didn't just cast the demon out. He said, and it will never come back. We stand in the place of victory because Jesus has come to the cross, defeated sin, and he's defeated death. And now we just wait for him, what, point number three, to come down the mountain again. And it's the third thing I want you to remember. Remember that Jesus is coming down the mountain again. It feels like the disciples felt. It's chaos. Things are crazy. What are we going to do? Remember, one of the most important things the New Testament tries to give you and I to remember is that Jesus is coming on the clouds. He's coming again. He's coming again. It's one of the most beautiful facets of the gospel. Jesus returns. He's not finished. It is finished. He ain't finished. There's hell to pay. Jesus is coming, and he's coming with a sword. He's coming to divide wheat from chaff, goat from lamb. He's coming to divide the the fish and the nets. He's coming to establish his eternal kingdom forever, to eradicate forever sin and death and sickness and everything that you hate. And he's coming to maximize ultimate humanity, everything that your soul longs for, to be present with his people. That is good news. And his first advent, his first coming, proves that his second one can be believed. Because he came once, he's coming again. He's not staying up the mountain. He's at the right hand of the Father right now. He's not staying up there. He's coming back. And we can depend on that. I know you know this stuff, but you need to be reminded of it. You need to be reminded of it. Remember this week that your weakness sets the stage for wonder. Remember this week that Jesus didn't stay on the mountain. He came down. He has come down. And remember that he's not staying on the mountain again. He's coming back. It's good news. And what do we do? In the meantime, we stay in the place of prayer, the place of dependence, right here, following after the Lord. Every day, we wake up and say, God, what do you have for me today? How do I trust you today? How do I follow after you today? We don't get out ahead of him. We stay at his heel. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have some discussion. Father, thank you for your grace this morning. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the way that these little snapshots, these little narratives just remind us of these truths that need to be driven into our heart, driven into our soul. That, man, we're like the nine. We're like the nine disciples. We, we don't have the power. We don't control it. And Jesus, you're just calling us into dependence. You're calling us to, to look to you, to be that. And Lord, I just pray for anyone here this morning that is not believing the gospel for themselves this week. I pray the gospel over them. I pray, Lord, that they would see the finished work of the cross. Lord, if there's shame in here, if there's guilt in here that has not been brought to the cross, Holy Spirit, would you bring it? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come down. 
Lord, that you were victorious. And Lord, we trust you. We love you. Help us just to follow more closely. Such a simple reality. Lord, it's so hard to follow. Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.